0: Welcome to Energy Radio, a podcast by CEM Engineering.
1: My name is Lisa Barber, and today I'm filling in for Matt Lensink, your regular host, and I'm joined by the one and only Bill Hinesley with PSMJ Resources. Bill's a pretty special guest for a couple of reasons. He belongs to PSMJ, which is a go-to source for engineering, architecture, or construction firms that are looking for training and advice amongst a number of other things, and one that our firm personally looks up to and follows quite intently. Bill's also an instructor of PSMJ, a course called Project Management Bootcamp, which our entire firm completed last year, and is also an instructor of the Proposals Bootcamp that I just finished up earlier this week in Toronto. Hopefully, Bill agrees, but I personally think he brings a unique spin to these courses because he incorporates the course material into an area that I'm constantly paying attention to personal development. So today's episode will be focused on the all-important subject of business development and good project management, but hopefully we'll be able to touch base on some of the great personal development ideas and concepts that Bill brings to the table. Hello, Bill. Welcome.
0: Hey, great to see you and talk to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us by phone today. Uh, And before we uh, get into the, the real meat of the podcast, I have to ask a very important question. And that is, did you earn your shower this morning?
0: Did I earn my shower? That sounds like a personal question. Did I, <laughs> did I earn my shower? It is, slightly. Absolutely, I earned my shower, right? That's, that's a, a funny little kind of phrase. We might talk through a few funny phrases during the course of this hour. But um, it's a funny little phrase that I just kind of used almost by accident in one of the uh, project management boot camps I did a couple of years ago. I talk about creating predictability and routine for our project teams and kind of started by saying, when you wake up in the morning, do you go out and do those things you really need to do? For me, one of my priorities became taking care of my physical fitness. So the thought was, do you wake up with energy? Do you go out? Do you work out, kind of pay the rent for, uh, for that body that we live in? Uh, if you do that, then you earned your shower. If you hit snooze button two or three times and you say I'll work out tomorrow, well then I hope you just took a shower. <laughs> uh, but that kind of distinguishes the the earners from the takers. So absolutely, I went out uh, and I earned my shower this morning. I uh, did a little bit of exercise, did a hundred burpees, and um, then I'm ready for the day. That's but, awesome. Yeah, but think about it. That's a kind of a yeah, it's a cool concept. You know, do we do those things that are uh, Maybe we don't want to do, but uh, that we have to do. So that's that's that kind of thought. Did you earn your shower?
1: Yeah, Get, getting that's, your that's, morning. That's, uh, that's
0: a fun way to look at it.
1: Yeah, and getting your morning set up right. That's great. That's awesome. Um, for the benefits of our yeah. listeners, Bill, can you provide us with a bit of a background on how, how you got to the spot in your career?
0: Absolutely. Uh, uh, the, guess what? I'm not an engineer. Uh, I'm not an architect. (laughs)
1: Uh, I've
0: got a background in biology and chemistry and then a background in policy. So I was fortunate enough in the 80s, not 80s, sorry about that, in the 90s, don't want to age myself too much, but uh, in the 90s to be uh, a staff member for two governor's commissions that were putting together uh, the policy and then the engineering program to restore the Everglades. So it was the combination of working with water supply, working with flood protection, working with environmental needs. That was really kind of the formative uh, stages of my career that I saw what it is that uh, that we could do to balance competing mm-hmm. needs. So when that was authorized in 2000, um, our, our commission was kind of sunsetted, and I thought, what's next? And a, a few folks from the consulting industry said, hey, let's go out there and hire this guy He'll be part of our team. So I didn't even know really, to be honest, I didn't know what engineering firms were uh, or architectural firms were. As a government an employee. I made the transition. Uh, and then very quickly, I learned I'm more of a, hey, let's make a plan kind of a guy than, hey, let's implement a plan for 30 years. So at the age of 29, I moved to Louisiana for the consulting firm I was working with. I opened up an office. I was a project manager, a program manager, office manager. I was learning while doing, you know, trying to figure it out. And uh, fortunately, uh, we were poised for success. We'll talk about it, but I think I was lucky, kind of the right place at the right time. I helped them put together a program through the office. Uh, And then, unfortunately, Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005. Um, I built some inroads with the government clients that I was working for, and they needed a lot of help after the storm. Uh, So I was poised to put together a a team that ended up doing the program management support services uh, for about $11 billion of design and construction work over the next six years. So my little office got very big, very fast. And to be truthful, I didn't really like it. Um, It was getting into different spots for me. So I, I moved to Seattle, Washington. Uh, where I I built another successful office. They promoted me into a national role, and I began doing it in California and other places. So we'll talk about it a little bit later, but I love this industry. Uh, It's done a lot for me. Uh, And along the way, I started teaching uh, through PSMJ, as you talked about. I think it's important to give back. So initially, teaching was just part of the way I gave back to the industry that had given so much to me. Uh, But then in 2014, I transitioned from working full-time in the AEC, the Architectural Engineering Construction Industry, to consulting and teaching to it. Um, That allowed me to, frankly, spend a little bit more time with my family. Uh, As a national director in a firm, I was on the road, I don't know, 80% or more of my time. And um, there's a saying, you become the average of the five people you hang out with the most. Uh, and frankly, those people weren't my family, uh, those other people, some I really looked up to, uh, and maybe we'll get into it in the series of this conversation. Some I let's to say I didn't want to be like them when I grew up. Right. So, uh, I had, I had the opportunity to kind of make some choices and we'll probably talk a little bit about choices throughout the, the course of this discussion. So I had kind of the existential crisis. I didn't know. What was next? But my wife and I sat down and talked and uh, we said, hey, let's do some more teaching with PSMJ. And that's led me to some you know, fantastic conversations some fantastic learning experiences and hopefully sharing a little bit over the last five years. And I look forward to doing it a lot, lot longer. Uh, that's a little bit about me.
1: Great, thank you very much. Well, since this episode is kind of targeted around business development and project management, I wanna use a a quote from Frank Stasiowski, I believe is how you say his name, the CEO of PSMJ. He says, power comes to those who bring in work. And PSMJ is a big advocate of the seller-doer model. It's a model that our firm has been adopting with greater intention over the last couple of years. And so for the benefits of our listeners, I'm wondering if you can describe what exactly is the seller-doer model, and why is it so important for engineering firms to follow? And that doesn't have to be limited to just engineering firms. It could be architecture, engineering, or construction firms, but why is, it, why, why is that seller-doer model so important?
0: First of all, I think Frank is absolutely right. Power comes to those who bring in work. Um, I'm sure that that might irritate some of your listeners. Um, we could go back and forth for a long time probably to say, what's more important, the people that sell the work or the people that do the work? Um, You know, you talk to a technical person and they'll say, well, we're obviously more important if we don't do the right job, then uh, we don't get it done. Uh, I tend to be in Frank's court, and I would say if we didn't sell that job, we didn't have the opportunity to do it to start with. Um, The reality is once we've sold it, uh, we have to do it right, or we'll never have the opportunity to repeatedly serve a client. Um, but to me, the power comes to those who bring in the work. The interesting duality maybe to that coin is on one side is selling, on the other side is doing. To be honest, a lot of our project manager and a lot of our technical folks don't like selling the work, Um and you you're right. Maybe we'll get into the di- the differences and the you know the discussion of business development. but um, you know the the reality is a lot of our clients, uh, we have to sell for them. You know, we yeah. have to present uh, what it is that we can do. Uh, and the people that are doing the work are very busy doing the work. So, as we discussed in the proposals boot camp earlier this week, there's a cadre of folks within our firms that can support that selling exercise. Uh, sometimes they can do it by actually talking with the clients, but a lot of times it's that frontline people of the project managers or the, the technical folks, the engineers, the architects that are working with the, the client that need to really carry out that information gathering and that, you know, that fine tactical arm of selling I think it's just on the, the inside of the firm, we can support them with the right skills and the right questions to ask and talk about. So, you know, the seller doer model sometimes is one person, that technical person that has to do both. Uh, in other firms, there's people that actually go out there and sell, and there's people that do. But regardless, we need to make that smooth and seamless transition from the selling mode into the doing mode. And, and really, I don't. We can make a lot of stuff complicated in this business. Uh, to me, selling and doing is all one coin. Uh, you know, it's just two different sides of it. It's it's the process of asking your clients, "Hey, what are your big issues?" Uh, and the reality is, some other issues are technical, and we have to address those technical issues. And some other issues are non-technical you know, their personality things, their management things, their fears, you know, hey, I'm in this new role and I don't know what to do in my new role. Right. Maybe somebody else should have gotten a promotion and now I'm gonna do it and they're on my team. How do I do how do I deal with them? That may be the most important thing we do for a client in the next two or three months, not the technical offering that we have. So to me that's the kind of that seller doer notion is we gotta go out there and sell the job, not in a slick used car salesperson kind of way. But in a genuine uh, capacity, I think I've heard it. Be interested, not interesting. Mm. Um, so, you know, technical people can be interested. What are your problems? You know, tell me a little bit more about it, and and that to me is selling. Uh, and if we better understand what those problems are, guess what? Then we can do it a lot better when it comes to the execution
1: stage. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And and the whole idea of selling—it's a really a, a very broad-based term can you describe what the differences are between business development marketing sales like we follow the PSMJ triangle internally where you've got marketing on the upswing you've got sales on the downswing and client retention on the base what what exactly are those differences everybody kind of lumps business development sales and, and marketing into one you know big thing and it, and it really you know there's there's some degrees of separation there
0: there are you said one big thing I <laughs> I'd maybe uh, propose an alternative in our business. We'd make it one big messy thing.
1: That's right, like, yeah. We, we can
0: make a mess of it. Like, why do we have to make everything a mess and complicated? So that that business development triangle you discussed from TSMJ is our attempt to kind of simplify it. Uh, you're right, it goes from marketing to sales to client retention. To me, marketing uh, is if you will, in Simon Sinek's words, it's kind of the infinite game. Uh, Marketing never ends. Uh, Marketing is creating brand awareness. Marketing is doing a great job on the the job you're doing right now uh, so that your clients know, like, and trust you. Uh, Marketing is going to professional organizational meetings uh, and not being that person that's trying to, quote, sell the job. Right. Just make some contact, broker some information, Marketing is creating a relationship. Marketing is going to a professional conference and presenting a poster uh, or, you know, presenting a talk so that somebody might not need what you're talking about right then. But the cool thing is when you market right, you get a call three months later or six months later, ostensibly out of the blue, and they say, can you help me with this? That's the purpose of marketing to me because marketing creates a poll orientation where the clients end up pulling you into the work. So to me, marketing is a bit softer touch. It's a little bit indeterminate. You know, It's doing the good things that you know you need to do. And one day the phone magically rings. Sales, on the other hand, to me, is push, push, push. Uh, whereas marketing is pull, sales is push. You get an RFP, you put a proposal together, and you push it out the door. Uh, if you're lucky enough, you get shortlisted and you have to make a presentation. You put it together and you push it out the door. Now, if you're lucky enough, you get selected. You put a good negotiation package together and you push it out the door. You know, So it's kind of a sales to me has a binary and state you either win or you lose. Whereas marketing goes on forever, sales, you win or you lose. If it's responding to an SOQ, a statement of calls, or responding to an RFP, a request for proposal, mm. You, you have to push and you're in the position to either win or lose. To be honest, you know, it's it's a project manager having to have a discussion with the client about a change order. See, to me, that's a sale. Like mm. if you feel that there's more scope than has been scoped, you have to convince the client that they've asked for more.
2: I love that. And now I either
0: need more time or more money. Right? Yeah. So, Again, sales isn't slick and it's not it's not underhanded. It's communicating a lot of times. It's educating about you know how much time something takes. Yeah, you know, obviously, if we're gonna do three alternatives rather than just give you the answer, that requires more money. Yeah. That's a sales job. yeah. Uh, and, and then that the, the third or the base of the of the triangle kind of keeping that client happy uh, and keeping them as a consistent you know repeat client that's kind of doing what you said you would do. We have some interesting uh, information at at PSMJ. Some folks, they might not have just like that conversation we had about change management or scope creep. We have, we have data that shows not only do firms perform better financially when they're not afraid to talk to the clients about change, they end up having better client relationships Mm. when they talk about change management. So you know, some folks may say, oh, I don't want to talk to the client about a change order because that's going to piss them off. Yeah. Well, we have data that goes to the contrary. You know, you can you can perform better financially, and you end up having a better relationship with somebody when you talk about it. Granted, they may not agree to the change order, but you end up having maybe a tough conversation that the, the outcome is a little bit more understanding about what, side, mm. what both sides are working.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. So, so for all you PMs out there, you're already selling. <laughs> a lot of people probably don't realize mm-hmm. that, right? So, no, that's, that's great. Every
0: time a PM tells me, oh, I can't sell, I can't sell, I don't know how to sell, I'm like, you're selling me right now. Yeah. I mean, that's a sales job. They're trying to tell me they don't want to sell. Yeah. That's a sale.
1: No, absolutely. I'm, I'm not buying that sale either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for, for the firms out there that aren't using a seller-doer model bill, what, in your opinion, are they best used with existing customers? Like, does the seller-doer work best with existing customers or potential customers? Do, do you find that in that seller-doer role, they're effective in the marketing phase of, you know, that triangle that we spoke about earlier? Like, you know, just planting lots of seeds and waiting for them to germinate, or are they best just handling those kind of existing accounts that have maybe already come in from past projects and, and getting them to work on those? and developing further business with those types of customers?
0: That's a great question, because I think you asked, I don't know if it was an attempt, but I think you asked two or three questions.
1: I did, right, yeah.
0: embedded in that. You, you did, that's sneaky. Um, <laughs> no, I, think the, <laughs> I think the seller-doer model works well with people. Uh, and it may not be a well-known fact, but a lot of our clients, um, Guess what? They're people too. Yeah. And um, as as much as we think all we're doing is selling our technical wares, if you will, um, we're looking at forging relationships with people because people like to do work with people that they know, like, and trust. Mm. So I think you kind of, you, you laced into the conversation existing clients versus new clients. Right. Um, to me... Uh, you know, there may be some finer points of having to to address both of those scenarios a little bit differently, but from a base level condition, I think one of the biggest things that we're looking to do is establish that trust. Mm. You know, people that we know like and trust. So a lot of times, that's getting some of our project management or some of our technical people in front of the clients. Um, they may need a client service manager or a principal or a salesperson to kind of broker that relationship or kind of talk through some things, Mm. um, particularly if the the project manager is new to it or the the technical person is new to it. But that's why I think, you know, going with two people to begin that conversation is so important. Mm. Um, you know, if it's an existing client relationship, there's no better time to get to know that person than we're working for them. Right. We're working on in, in our parlance, we're working on a job that's chargeable, billable. Um, You know, that's the time to actually talk to the client, not to run back to the office and then just show up and we have a deliverable. Right. It's that cup of coffee before a meeting. It's that five minutes after a meeting to talk about things, you know, potentially both professional and personal. Um, If it's that, that quote unquote cold call with a new client, it's looking to establish some consistent uh, interests or, or uh, understandings of projects. Uh, to, to kind of talk through things to warm them up. But uh, I think both ways, uh, it really requires forging and building that relationship.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: that's the big thing. I mean, it, it's, it, it sounds almost obvious, but uh, clients are people, too. Uh, and I think people have both technical problems and non-technical problems. And, and Back to what we said earlier, I think it's important to discover and understand both of those. And some people may say, you know, hey, I tried that with a client. They they don't want to talk about anything personal. You know, I said my background is as a scientist. Great. That's a data point. Right. That's what I would call a data point. Absolutely. I don't want to schmooze. I don't want to have a cup of coffee. This is just about getting work done. That's awesome. Yeah. You know what? Now I understand that. And I am going to affect my behavior, my demeanor, when I'm with you, to really be focused, maybe to be analytical on some of the work. You know, sitting with another client, either new or existing, you know, you get to tell some jokes. You hear five stories. You know what? That probably puts that client at ease, and I'm going to listen to it, and then I'll transition into the agenda that we mm. work through. Uh, but that's all modified and learned behaviors that I think we have to learn, at both the seller and the doer side of things.
1: Yeah. No. Absolutely. And do you find then in your experience, you know, working with different firms? because an engineer typically speaking they want to do the work they want to engineer they want to that's what they're really good at that's kind of why they went to school and some of them might think they went you know they went to school so they didn't have to talk with people at all <laughs> right which isn't necessarily the case obviously when you get in right but but let's you know the, the truth of the matter is that is the case for a lot of engineers so do you find that the do you find that business development either courses or you know Maybe it's uh, you know one of your one of the courses that you guys offer, like you know the proposals boot camp that I went to. Do you find that those are effective in kind of teaching engineers both the hard stuff of business development and marketing and the soft stuff?
0: I do. It's it's um it's interesting. One of the early slides that we have in the project management boot camp. Just ask attendees to talk about some of the traits of the best project manager that they know.
2: Mm.
0: And, you know, I'll, I'll, it's an open-ended question. I just say, you know, let's talk about some of the traits of the best project managers you know. And I'll fill up a whole flip chart sheet with all these words. And then I'll just ask a question going down that list. How many people have a bachelor's degree in this? Or how many people get their their... Their master's degree in that item, and it's almost comical because as we look through the list, I just ask them the question: "Is this a list?" And I, I commend them. This is a great list. I really love it. Great list. Uh, and then I and I say, "Are these a list of hard skills or a list of soft skills?" Uh-huh. And you see everybody's face go ah, <laughs> and then and then they go. Yeah, but, you know, I actually had an attendee a little while ago He said, Bill, don't call them soft skills because they're so hard to me. They're <laughs> interpersonal skills. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and to your point, right, we go to school to learn all these hard skills, to, to be a scientist for me, to be an engineer, to mm-hmm. be an architect. So what I see is it's not my job because I probably wouldn't be capable of doing it in a two-day program to teach if you will, somebody, all these soft skills or interpersonal skills. But I, I look at as my my task is a bit more to reframe mm-hmm. this notion of we went to school to get really smart and that's going to move us forward in this career, mm-hmm. either being a seller or a doer. Mm-hmm. Um, that very thing that we probably avoided was a lot of the interpersonal skills. But my reframe is to say, You know, if we use some of these traits, by the way that everybody just listed, we could go out there and better understand what the issues are that our client really has. So I think it's fair to say if you tell a technical person, you need to develop all these interpersonal skills, they might say, no, I don't want to do it. Mm
2: -hmm. But if
0: I say these are all tactics, all these interpersonal skills, so that you can better understand what are the problems, you know, what are the issues that your client has, then you're going to be able to better either do yourself or with your team all this fun technical work. And by the way, we're going to understand the context, the interpersonal context of how we deliver it. Right. So I, I've, I've, I've tended to find, you know, being able to say, let's reframe, you know, that this is all going to be about soft skills. This, to me, the soft skills are my tactics that I use to better, just me, I can geek out. I can nerd out on technical work, <laughs> but, you know, I have to understand the, the interpersonal relationships that this work is governed by.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and then all of a sudden I say, you know, if you've been classically trained as an architect or an engineer, you know how to identify issues. You know what you would do about it. I, I was with a structural engineering firm and I said, if you didn't know how to develop a calculation for, you know, understanding the load on a span, what would you do? Just make it up? Oh my gosh! That you know the eyes get big, and they go. No, we wouldn't look it up. You <laughs> know, we would talk to a senior person, or we would we would we would research it a little bit more. We would get the right formula. I right. said, Okay, it's the same deal. When when we have this interpersonal, if you will, technical shortcoming of I don't know what to do when somebody's mad, or I don't know what to do when somebody doesn't respond to me. It's that's just a shortcoming. Like yeah. don't make it up. Yeah. Uh, just as you wouldn't do for that calculation, talk to somebody. One of the hardest things for me when I became a new project manager was to learn how to say, "I don't know. I'll get back to you." Um, it's almost perverse, but you know the thing is, we as technical people, as soon as you kind of get your technical kind of wheels underneath you, yep. What do you quote? What do they do to you? What do your managers do? They promote you to be a project manager, and you don't know what you're doing all over again. Probably, by the way, you're probably managing people that don't know what they're doing because now you're you know, four or five years more experienced than them. That's, by the way, kind of the way the, the business works. It's kind of the way life works. Uh, but when a client asks you, brand-new project manager, what do you think about this? Uh, if you're not deeply technically competent in that, right, you, you don't know a lot about it, mm-hmm. they know if you're making it up. They know if you're lying a lot of times. Uh, but you're absolutely terrified to say, I don't know, I'll get back to you. But isn't that the exact exact right thing to say?
1: Absolutely, if yeah. If you
0: don't work just by yourself or you know, <laughs> with your own firm, yes, somebody in your firm. By the way, that's probably why our firms team all the time. Hey, we need this technical expertise. So the project manager is that person that can say, I don't know, I'll get back to you. By the way, if you say that, you better get back to them.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but,
0: but, the, but the reality is, it's, it's funny. You look at people that are seasoned project managers or actually leaders in their firm, they say, I don't know, or, wow, that's interesting, or, hey, we have some folks that are working on that. You know, all different kind of uh, iterations of that sentiment of, I don't know, I'll get back to you. Mm-hmm. I'm not the expert, but I know that person. Let me bring them to the meeting tomorrow. Um that's a lot of what we have to do as project mm. managers. You shouldn't take this as advice to say, hey, Bill said, I don't know, I'll get back to you an answer I say to everything. But um, when you say that in the right scenarios, that gives even more credence to when you do give an answer, right, then that builds trust. Absolutely. Says, wow, I asked Bill five questions. He gave me four answers and one, oh, it looks like he has a homework assignment. You know, And then uh, when I get back with that homework assignment, That builds trust. That builds trust on both sides. It builds credibility. Those are big ways to do so. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's being a little uncomfortable saying that word. You know, I'm I'm not sure. I need to get back to you. Funny thing is, the first time I said that, the client says, "Sure, great, yeah, get back to me."
1: Yeah, everybody's worried about that. Right? Like everybody's worried about. Everybody's worried about. Getting back to it, or 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 saying that to a customer, when in all reality most customers they're fine with that. Okay, they they realize that you're not the expert at everything. You've got a whole team of people within the firm that have got the answers for you and that are have got those credible answers and the right answers for you. So why would you give them a you know a part answer instead of an answer that's you know that's that's well thought out and that actually resembles your your firm's ability to, to perform on the project or the task or whatever it is, right?
0: I have found people in this industry care a lot, um, right? I think we wear our technical credentials as armor around kind of the soft, gooey insides of really caring about the work, caring about our people, caring about our clients, and um, it just. Feels a little bit easier, right? Mm-hmm. Because we want to be yes people to give the answer right now. Uh, the harder answer would be, I don't know. I need to get back to you. But I, this may be a generality, but I think a lot of technical people that I met are, when it comes down to it, people pleasers, mm-hmm. uh, and they want to help. Uh, but the reality is sometimes that is by going and getting the expert.
2: Yeah. And
0: I, I talk about two different words. We've been. Taught to be deeply technically competent in our profession, or I'm going to be very American for a minute. We've got to be <laughs> kind of a, an inch wide and a mile deep. Mm. Some of your Canadian listeners, like, oh, come on, man!
2: <laughs> but but you're
0: know, <laughs> inch wide and a mile deep. If you have your master's degree, you're a half an inch you know wide and, and two miles deep. Right. If you have your PhD. Oh, good gracious, you're a quarter inch wide and seven miles deep. But you know a lot about a very little narrow segment of life uh, or your profession. Project managers are asked questions all the time that they have no idea what the client's even talking about. Mm. You can spell it phonetically, good luck, right? But then you, you go back with that and you talk to folks in your firm and you say, Hey, I don't know about this. What do you think? See project managers, I say are about a mile wide and inch deep. Uh, so they've got to know just a little bit about a lot. Mm. The, the, the rub comes in when some of us do have this deep technical competency, uh, but we also have to operate in a level of proficiency. I think that's where the pain comes in for us in trying to learn, when am I competent and when am I proficient? You know, the only way you figure that out is by going out and having a conversation. Yeah. Figuring it out. Yeah. So none of us get it perfect. It takes a little practice.
1: No, very cool let's talk for a minute a little bit about the base of the PSMJ triangle and, and your experience specifically relating to this. so the base again for our listeners being client retention. do you have any specific strategies to maintain or manage you know the retention of clients? I do
0: I, this is where you may be looking for some secret sauce or yes, absolutely. Right I want to hear it. <laughs> You know, you know what it is? I don't got it, I don't got it. Uh, to, to me, you know what I do have is I have fundamentals. like client retention uh, and is about not necessarily keeping them happy. I don't know that the word happy you know mm. is, is, is that right word, uh, but it's keeping them engaged uh, and building that relationship. How do we build relationships? Uh, and there's a lot of market research on this. It's it's about doing what you said you would do. It comes back to integrity, uh, and it comes back to communication. And for me, the if you will, the hacks or the tips that I have about client retention, and, and this is funny because it bridges from the seller side to the doer side. The the three big hacks that I have is do a project management plan. Um, and that can be as simple or sophisticated as, as your, your, your client really demands and as your firm wants. The second one is forecasting what it is that you're going to do, you know, in the near-term future. That's with your team and your client, so kind of what's coming up. Some folks can do it for a week. Some folks can do it three weeks out. Uh, but then the third thing is so basic, to me it's progress reports, progress mm. reports, progress reports, progress reports so when you when you kind of marry those three things together of uh, project management plans, forecasting some time and effort, and then progress reports, what that does is really set up the the conditions with your client to say, "Hey, this is what we're doing." Because the reality is when we get a notice to proceed, you know when the sale has really finalized, we won the job and we get the notice to proceed. Almost every job I've ever been a part of, things begin to change, mm-hmm. right? But we don't mm-hmm. know they're changing unless we've got kind of a marker. To me, that's what the project management is.
2: Mm.
0: Um, and that just kind of memorializes what we think we're going to do, how much it's going to cost, when we're going to do it, risks, and, you know, resources, quality review. Um, lots of different things, even some other things that we have, some of our secret sauce there is how are we going to develop that client relationship? How are we going to add value? Um, adding value doesn't mean, you know, spending lots of money doing something the client doesn't even recognize. Adding value may be, you know, some, simple as a smile, right? And, right. Uh, just getting a little bit ahead of that report that their boss needs and, you know, giving some of the input two days ahead in just the format that they need so they can cut and paste and put it in there. And then that made their boss really happy. Mm. So that's what the project management plan does. Forecasting time allows us to kind of make sure we got the right people uh, because it's a people business lined up to execute uh, on that work. And the progress report is really my first line of defense uh, in terms of managing change Mm. because We don't want to nickel and dime our clients, but also I don't want to just kind of hold this stuff in until the point that I kind of freak out and then I'm I'm kind of yelling back at my client. Um, So it allows us to have a dialogue and it kind of forces us to have a dialogue before either the client gets frustrated or we get frustrated. Right. Um, In the consulting world, I've heard a lot, oh, we're only as good as our last deliverable or we're only as good as Mm -hmm. our last meeting. Uh, I think we're only as good as the impression that last deliver or last mm. meeting. So some of it is managing the actual facts of what happened. Some some is you know managing the perception of how things are going. And progress reports allows us to get in front of those um, and and take away some of the sting or some of the fear about having these conversations. Yeah,
1: so, no, those are. I think good if you tips. do
0: those, you yeah. I'll, I'll tell a funny story. One of my, my one of my uh, friends that I have here in Seattle. I think it was 4 or 4.30 in the morning we were going through the uh, airport security line. And it, it wasn't until we were on the other side of the x-ray scanner thing that we realized we were sitting next to or standing next to one another. And this guy's smart. He's got his MD, his PhD. You know, he's always many steps ahead of me in terms of how smart he is. I thought, oh, I've got him on the ropes. Neither of us even recognized we were standing next to one another. <laughs> uh, so I said, hey, Sam, tell me something smart thinking, I'm going to win this one. And he looked at me and he said, Bill, uh, the quality of our life is in direct relationship to the number of difficult conversations
1: we have. Wow. Hold on one second. Just repeat that again, because I want to make sure that sinks in with our listeners. That's just so great. Say that again, Bill.
0: Right. Boom. He got me. (laughs) He said "The (laughs) the quality of our life is in direct proportion to the number of difficult conversations we have.
2: Wow. So if wow. you think
0: about it, right, there's a lot of difficult conversations we have to have with our principal or with our client or with our team. And You know, if we shy around and we don't do it or we don't have that conversation, life just kind of, I don't know, what the, life kind of sucks a little bit, honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, you feel like there's this, there's this cloud in the air, there's something going on. And it's not having these conversations just for the the mere fact that you want to make make or inflict pain on people. It's that, you know, there's this thing we got to talk about. I mean, why did I wake up this morning to do burpees? I didn't do it because I wanted to, they suck. Anybody that doesn't know what burpees are, you know, check out what a burpee is on YouTube. You go, oh, that's easy, you'll do 10 of them and then you'll be like, good good gracious, what's (laughs) going on? You know, I did burpees this morning not because I wanted to, but because I have to.
2: Mm.
0: I, I made that choice of if I wake up and I do something difficult that adds meaning to my life, right? It it allows me to have better physical fitness and and have energy, so I can do the things I want to do. Mm-hmm. Then it makes my life better. I mean, trust me. My pillow this morning was saying, "Bill, sleep another hour." <laughs> right? And I I was like. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go and do what I need to do, do the difficult thing. And then I, I get to have fun for the rest of the day. Yeah. So, man, Sam got me, you know, 4.30 in the morning. I don't think that's original to him. I've heard it, you know, from difficult, uh, dif- different people beforehand. But um, that's what we have to do as a project manager. And I think your team, your clients, other people will really begin to respect you, uh, even if you don't get through it perfectly. Mm -hmm. I would say expect when you begin to have those conversations, you'll fumble through them. Uh, You might offend some people, but it's all done to try to bring us together, right, rather than drive a wedge between us. Mm -hmm. It's going to have a lot of positive impact in meeting.
1: That's great. No, that's awesome. So we've talked a lot about the... Um, you know, the seller-doer model from mainly a sales kind of approach thus far. So I want to pivot the discussion a little bit and talk about project management. And, you know, since we're on the the topic of quotes, some of your famous quotes, I was personally intrigued by one that you had said last year uh, when I was in the project management boot camp, and that is, to be a successful PM you must be comfortable being uncomfortable can you describe that and why that's so important
0: it's I mean I think it's exactly what we we're just talking about right you've got to become comfortable being uncomfortable it's interesting leaders project managers they don't always have the answer but a lot of times they can ask these probing questions mm. uh, and it's it's you know having that, desire to have the conversation to kind of begin to bring the team together towards technical resolution of issues or towards interpersonal resolution of issues to kind of bring these things out. If we go back to that kind of sense of deep technical competency versus proficiency, yeah, that, that'll be an intimidating position to think, oh my gosh, here I am the project manager. Um, uh-huh. I kind of value being smart, and yet here's this issue I don't know anything about. What are we going to do? Mm. That's a perfect example of being comfortable becoming uncomfortable. You know, It's putting out that conversation point like, hey, I'm noticing the issue is coming up, uh, and even I don't know what to do about it. Hey, team, what do you think we can do? At least I think that's a really uncomfortable exercise. It took me four, maybe five years to learn how to begin saying hey, here's the issue, see if I can frame it. Yeah, uh, And then begin to even say, great, now that we've framed it, what do we do about that? Mm. Because I think a lot of us technically we want to be seen as, hey, we're smart enough, or we're the leader, we can do it. The, one of the secrets to that is if we begin being, comfortable, being uncomfortable, the rest of the team sees it, and they kind of begin to lean into that effort mm. a little bit. And they begin to follow that leadership uh, or that management and say, Hey, Bill, you know, it was kind of brave to say that. And um, I've got some ideas of what we might do around this. Yeah. The neat, and I don't think it's a secret, but the neat secret of this is you know, as, a, as a young leader and as a young manager, I thought I had to kind of be in charge or, or, or be smarter than everybody else. But the more I was uncomfortable exposing, my limitations, it wasn't to say I never did work, I tried to do a lot of hard work to stay ahead of the team, but when I ran into that, that kind of brick wall, when I had the humility or the vulnerability to say, hey, this is where I am, uh, I think other folks might have some ideas, when other folks put out the ideas, that idea is their idea. Yeah, that allows me to step back a little bit as the project manager and say, yeah, that's a really good thought. What mm. does everybody think about what Lisa suggested? Right. Now everybody says, yeah, let's do that. And that, that's Lisa's plan. So I don't have to get you to buy into my plan, which by the way, I have no idea if it's going to work or not. If you've got more experience or more understanding, you put the plan forward. I'm not trying to get my team to buy into my plan, which may be half fake, It's the team's plan. Right. Uh, and then on top <clears throat> of that, it allows me to say, well, Lisa, I really like that plan. Maybe there's, maybe there's one modification. What, what do you think about this? Mm. And then, you know, the team members say, oh, I like that. You're wow. You are a great project manager. Well, wow. not really. I just uh, backed out a little bit. Uh, and then I made one or two suggestions from my vantage point, what I know. Uh, and then we collectively, the team put together a better solution, you know, better action. That's, That's to me what I mean to be comfortable. Mm. It's the Burpee thing. You know, I I'd been doing that for a little while. I kind of used it as one of the lines in the in the PM boot camp. At last year's Thrive meeting in New Orleans, um, we had the the hotel was on Bourbon Street. I thought, oh gosh, how's that going to go for a, you know, for a meeting? Yeah. We we put out a thing. If you want to, you can work out at six in the morning with Bill. You can earn your shower. Uh, you know, you you can go out there and work out. I thought nobody's going to show up for this. You know, about I don't know what it was. About seven or eight percent of the attendees showed up in the morning to go work out. At
1: six wow, out. cool. You
0: know, everybody, everybody's not going to do it. But, you know, I think those people who spend a little time, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable means they're going to be a little bit uncommon from everybody else. They're going to be willing to fill in the blank, have that conversation, uh, go out and exercise. You know what they might do? They might be willing to, you know, tell the client I don't know. They might be willing to go on vacation for three days and and not take their laptop with them. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) That's talking about being uncomfortable okay. you know, but that might mean what you need to do right now mm-hmm. you know, refresh yourself refresh your your relationship with people not at work. So that's that's what it's that's what it's about just incremental changes to mm-hmm. do that.
1: So I'm curious was the uh, was your workout session full of burpees Is that basically what uh, what you were doing?
0: Uh, it was. We, we had a little bit of a session saying uh, the seven minute workout. Which is actually an app that we use. Okay. Uh, and it also it's also yeah we did a few burpees in there uh, to be honest. Just just kind of the discussion that I was having. Some of the attendees at the Thrive conference actually woke up early in the morning. Yes. So at six o'clock, yeah. you know, at at a hotel on Bourbon Street you know, 7 or 8% of the attendees there wake up so that they can work out in the morning. And that's pretty incredible because, you know, when when you're at, the, it's at a conference and you're in New Orleans and on Bourbon Street, I had a little bit of fear.
2: Yeah.
0: Thinking everybody here is here to learn about running their architecture firm, their engineering firm, who's actually going to do this? And it, so I was uncomfortable even thinking, is this a silly notion to get people to work out in the morning? But the neat thing is, people showed up. Yeah. Uh, And we did we did the seven minute workout. We did some burpees, like you were saying. Uh, But the neat thing is, I was uncomfortable bringing up the idea. Other people all had their own exercise regimes. Mm -hmm. You know, there were a few people that went over the treadmill. The second day of it, actually, four people woke up a half an hour early so they could go for a, a run all around the French quarter. They came, When we came down at 6 o'clock, they were laughing at us because they were soaking wet with sweat. <laughs> they were like, oh, you're going to go earn your shower in the, in the air conditioner down in the gym. We've been outside for a run for a half an hour. I mean, it, that was neat because I was uncomfortable enough, but also confident enough to say, what the heck, we're going to do this thing. You know, if you want to work out before the day's activities start, people showed up. You know, and it's important to know it was a minority of people, it was mm. by far less than ten percent, but the people there that were passionate about it. You know, and I actually learned from them. And the funny thing is that was in October, I still keep in touch with a lot of those folks, right? We we check in on how you're doing in your business. I've talked to a lot of those folks how they're doing in their personal lives. Um the funny thing is, maybe a few of us are getting older, so injuries or things like that. We send a little mm. text about, oh, I just had to have surgery, and but you know what? I'm getting back to running. I'm excited. My knees feeling better, right? So I, I, that to me adds a richness and it adds a meaning to life. And it all started because I was at least courageous enough to be uncomfortable to talk to the folks at PSMJ and say, hey, should we put this thing in into the uh, into the program to say if you want to wake up and do something that's uncomfortable nice so i think we can all take a little lesson from that it by the way it doesn't have to be working out uh you know when i was in new orleans here's part of my story i was close to 50 pounds heavier than i am right now i was overweight a few of the folks there because we were working with the army and things like that they woke up in the morning and they did pt and all this macho stuff they're like bill hey man you got to get in shape You, you should do this and i was like hey round is a shape <laughs> so, I mean, uh, well, but there's a lot to that statement right I think they genuinely wanted me to be a part of the group mm. but I was really intimidated they were all in shape you know I, I thought man they really have their act together they do never you know want me to do this I I've, I neglected my health for probably 10 years or so because I put it all into my career working late.
2: Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even
0: sacrifice 15 minutes or half an hour to do something. So each time they asked me, and I was asked over and over and over, I would come back with some silly quip to try to get out of it.
2: Mm -hmm. But
0: one of, you know, a different person that I looked up to said, Bill, do afternoon walking, talking meetings. Like, what the heck is that? And they were like, well, instead of just sitting in your office to do that half an hour check-in phone call in the afternoon, you know, Put on your headset and just walk around the office or put on your headset. And there's like, there was like, we had like this little trail around the office. We could just walk back and forth for, you know, a half an hour. Sure, I had to put the phone on mute every once in a while. But that was something that was so small, I could change that little teeny habit. And you know what? I lost a few pounds, you know, three or five pounds or something like that. And then I was like, you know what? Now I might do this, and now I might do that, mm. and now I might do that. That was kind of a keystone habit that I created was do these little things. Going for a run, you know, early in the morning was too much for me to do; it was unapproachable. Mm. But doing a walking, talking conference call was a very small change in the habit. I didn't change, you know, what I ate. I didn't change you know, what I, I. I didn't change anything else. I just walked around and had a conference call. The funny thing is, two or three people on the conference call—they started doing the same thing. They're oh, like, wow. If you're walking around, I'm going to be walking around. Interesting. But we got these little—you know—these little benefits all of a sudden started accruing, and then it was like, "Hey, you know what? If I do this, then that happens. If I do that, that happens." Mm. Uh, that was a neat thing. Um, and that—that that to me is what it's about. It's about incremental progress. Mm. Uh, there was a there was a gentleman who was a student at my proposals boot camp. Uh, about two years ago. Midway through the second day, he said to me, Bill, you haven't talked about burpees yet. I'm like, what the? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I feel like I can be a little too evangelical, got to go do burpees. but So I wasn't going to say anything in this whole class. And he told me, he was like, you haven't talked about it. I'm like, you know, the rest of the class was like, what what are these two people talking about? Uh, And this gentleman, you know he didn't look like an athletic specimen that you know he's he's a, a gym rat or anything and I said oh well I'd like to do burpees because class wanted to know I said why do you bring this up and he goes why well, did 25 burpees this morning wow. I was like, ah.
1: uh-huh.
0: see he didn't want he didn't want he didn't want me to talk about burpees I think he wanted to talk about burpees Interesting. he said that the president of his company had done a little fitness challenge and he had he had linked it to a charity uh, and the president said I will donate some money for every burpee that our company does together Nice. and um, the interesting thing is collectively they did thousands tens of thousands, I think hundreds of thousands of burpees that year Uh, you know, young folks Old folks, men, women, the in shape folks, the not in shape folks. This gentleman, mm-hmm. I think he the, the training was in May. I think he'd lost more than twenty pounds already that
1: year. Wow, unbelievable! Uh, yeah,
0: and he's you know he said I don't drink beer like during the weekdays. I only have a beer on weekday. If anybody would have said I wouldn't drink a beer on the weekday, that would be crazy. But he was like, you know what? I didn't drink beer two or three days, and my burpees were a little bit easier the next day. So now I'm I'm eating healthy. I've lost weight. He he didn't go into it with any, you know, intention to say, I'm going to get in shape and all these things. He just said, hey, if there's a few young guys in the office doing this, I can do this too. And then he did a few burpees. He was like, whoa, you know, uh, I, I can't do this. It was a little bit of a reality check, right? I think we sometimes need that reality check. Yeah. And then he made the incremental progress. To me, that, that that's a perfect metaphor for what we have to do on our project teams. You know, if you walk into a project team and say, you guys are all messed up and you're not doing that, the team's going to push back. But if you say, hey, what can we do to maybe do this little thing? Or, hey, I think, you know, maybe we're in a mm. little bit more pain than we need to be in this pain. What if we did this something different? Or, you know what, I think we're in pain, are we? And then mm-hmm. all the team goes, yeah, we are. And they say, what are we going to do about it? they they go, I have no idea. What do you guys think? Yeah. The funny thing is they'll come up with a solution. We implement it, and next thing you know, it could be how we do our project management plan or how we do our technical mm. reviews or what our little production thing is. And the team owns it all, right? That's the thing. It's not the PM's idea. It's the team that's doing that. That's a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. But it, it started with the PM being a little bit vulnerable to say this might be an uncomfortable conversation mm-hmm. and how do we go from there?
2: Oh, that's so cool. hopefully
0: I'm on point and not off point with that conversation. But, you know, I think... I think it's being brave enough to just have these little things. You know, we don't have to throw rocks and stuff like that. It's just incremental improvement that that makes a big difference to a lot of our teams.
1: No, that's great advice and a great length. Yeah, thank you, Bill. That's awesome. Um, At the start of our conversation, you had talked a little bit, just hinted on it, about controlling budget and schedule. So I wanna kind of touch on that in a little more detail if we can. So I don't personally get involved with the deeper aspects of project management, at least on a daily at CEM. Um, But I know that there's nothing more important to a customer than having a project completed on time and within budget. But yet there's so many firms, so many PMs, they experience problems with the specific arena once the project gets started. Is there, in your opinion, like what's the largest contributor to this problem? Is it scope creep and changes within the project? Um, And if so, what are your recommendations for PMs to avoid those issues early on?
0: I like the way you ended that early on. Um, I I think there's, you're, you're absolutely right. The reality is clients may say they want all different kinds of Scope, scope, scope. They want all kinds of excellence and quality built into their project. But at the end state, what they really measure us on is it was it delivered when it was promised or when we agreed on, and was it delivered on budget? So it's amazing how clients even fixated on, you know, the best, the best, the best, are eventually towards the end of the project gonna focus on both both budget and schedule. So you're 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 question is framed perfectly from our perspective mm. that's what it comes down to. So I think it, it comes, the reality down to two elements. One was it kind of an alignment of scope, schedule, and budget to start with. So I think that is a key area where the project manager probably needs to participate is the word. Um, they might not lead this effort. A client service manager or a principal may lead that effort. But it's so important for the PM to at least participate in that conversation. Mm. It gets back to what we were just talking about ownership, right? Right. And then it's their part of it. By the way, the PM should know more about the details of the job than anybody else, sometimes even the, the client. So their participation is critical. You know, they might not have the authority to actually make decisions in negotiating, but participating is where they can express their their concerns or their knowledge about the project and shape it Mm. to be right from the get-go. So I think that's a key element is how the the PMs participate. You know, maybe they don't lead, maybe they lead, but at least participate to start. Mm -hmm. Then you got to that dreaded dirty word of scope change or scope creep or anything else. That to me is squarely on the PM's shoulders, right? If we do a project management plan, if we're looking at forecasting and doing progress reports, That's where I said earlier, there's no secret hacks or I don't have the secret sauce. It's kind of the fundamentals. If they come back to those big three, at least to me, that, and you can pick the word, that forces, Mm -hmm. uh, that supports, that facilitates the PM having the conversation with their team. Hey, team, what is it that we need to do to meet this schedule or this budget? Uh, Or the principal. Hey, principal, Uh, you know, we thought we could do this. It was really looking good two months ago until you stole all my technical people.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And I'm trying to do my best here. You know, how am I going to meet these promises we put together when you stole all my technical people? Or, you know, or fill in the blank. You know, this was harder than we thought. This forces the PM or facilitates the PM having that conversation with the principal. The progress reports also forces or facilitates the project manager having that conversation with the client. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had a client, a few clients that, you know, they pay for uh, that part of progress reports and things like that. So they expect routine updates. uh, And I get to have those routine updates, both good and bad, before they're really good and bad, they're issues. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I've used to say is issues brought up early on, well, those are for us all to address. Issues brought up at the last minute, that's your problem. Mm. I think that's a big reality. Like, clients hire us to solve issues. They know projects have issues. Principals in charge rely on project managers to solve issues. You know, that's the project manager's responsibility. We've got to solve all these issues. And we've talked about it. Some are technical, some are non technical. Progress reports allow us to bring up issues early on when we can all work on them. Sometimes the PM may have to assign stuff back to the client to do.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Sophisticated clients will go like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I know, we need to get on this. Thanks for the reminder. That's great. Uh, Or at least it's documenting that I'm trying to facilitate this to a resolution. Mm -hmm. I've had clients that don't want to do progress reports and meetings and stuff like that. A very simple tactical tool that I do is on Friday afternoons, I send them a little progress report, whether they want it or not. Mm. Uh, something magical about Friday afternoons. If you send that progress report on a Friday afternoon, even if they don't want it, think about it. What is everybody's mood on a Friday afternoon?
1: It's good. <laughs> Why not, right? There you go.
0: Good. I'm happy. Yeah. Right? I'm a good mood. I'm getting ready to go for the weekend. Oh, look at this. I got a little love note from Bill. Oh, he said three things went well this week. Ooh, there's something that we need to talk about. I tell you what, I would get a response very quickly from... Even those clients that never respond to everything, they don't want a progress report. Right. Send them a little love note. Send them that progress report on by the afternoon. They're in a good
2: mood. Mm. And they go,
0: hey, thanks for this bill, hey, why don't we get on that Monday morning? Yeah. That goes to say, what are clients' moods Monday morning? What is everybody's mood Monday morning?
1: Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Not and, happy.
0: And, I don't and, want to. Yeah. So I never send progress reports on Monday morning because then every time, that's not a love note. That's an, oh, man.
2: Yeah. So...
0: You know, I, I send progress reports to folks, especially folks that don't want them on Friday afternoons because they're like, oh, thanks for the note. Good week. I'm heading out. We'll deal with this next week. Yeah. So I'm communicating. That's a, a you know a tactical tool that I use to do that. Uh, and then, you know, we get to it next week.
1: Yeah. And And my own tip for the audience, on Fridays, most people... you know, kind of avoid Fridays from a business development perspective, they're like the plague. They're like, people don't want to hear from me on Fridays. It is one of the best days to cold call clients because people are in a great mood. They're willing to set up meetings, right? So anyways, I just thought I would throw that one out there. Um,
0: I I I agree 100%, 100% with you. People are on good. Technical folks may say, "Oh, now Lisa Bill are falling off the deep end." But you know what? It's what we've been talking about. It's yeah. the technical, but it's all the also the interpersonal. Yeah. Right. Communicate when people are in a good mood, and they're going to associate you with that good mood. It's nothing else. It's nothing you said or did. It's just you, know, you can go do an experiment and try to set up meetings on Friday afternoon versus trying to set up meetings when you call people Monday morning. Yeah. They're not want to do it. But yeah.
1: Exactly. there's a many firms, obviously today are focused on productivity. Um, but I think that there's a fine line, and I'd love to hear specifically from you how you've managed this in your own career. I mean, it sounds like you're doing part of it already, but you know there's a fine line between working too much and making sure that you don't burn out. and um, and then I just making sure you're, you're controlling your schedule, allocating that time towards the jobs that you need to do from both a, you know, a personal and professional level. Do you have any tricks that you could maybe share or tips that you can share with the, with the audience on how you've personally managed that, Bill?
0: I think it's kind of the distillate, if you will, of what we've been talking about. Um, people talk about work-life balance. I don't know that I have that. Um, I actually I do but from my perspective mm. my perspective is a fairly longer time horizon uh, that I'm afforded now that I'm a teacher that's a little different than you know being in the business of consulting mm.
2: um,
0: but to me it's about managing expectations first I focus on things that I have to do before I focus on things that I want to do so that's a little bit of the burpee conversation or become um, become comfortable doing uncomfortable things you know is is look at what you have to do versus you what you want to do mm. uh, and we we have to do those things we have to do um, there's Franklin Covey or Stephen Covey's put together that great four quadrants things that are important or things that are not important things that are urgent or things that are not urgent uh, if people have seen that. They know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, people can search that very quickly. Uh, but the reality is, Stephen Covey says, every day we have to do some, some things that are important and urgent. Both most people and everyday people spend about a quarter of their time there. Mm. And that's probably realistic. You know, I, I know that there's probably two or three hours of stuff that I have to do every day. It's both important and urgent. So my focus is get her done. Um, To me and to a lot of project managers, I think that means get it done first thing before the day just goes out of control. Right. I tried working out the evenings Mm -hmm. because I have more energy then. It doesn't work. If I wake up and get it done early in the morning, then it's done. Uh, If I have to write that email, it's just I'm dreading. Like just write the email and then send it mm. because if you, if you wait until 3 o'clock in the afternoon to do it, you've been dreading for seven hours and you probably haven't been that productive doing it. Just mm. get it done and get it out of the way. The bigger difference is that quadrant two, things that are important but not urgent. Um, that's where high performers live. They spend three quarters to, to maybe 80% of their time there. Uh, just one thing helps you do that progress reports, progress reports, Mm. progress reports. Have I mentioned those before? (laughs) (laughs) But the silly thing is as a project manager, when I learned to do those, that was me preventing all these, you know, explosions and forest fires and and urgent things before they happened. Um, I, I go into a lot of detail in that project management bootcamp, but, but, but that's the reality. Um, Yeah, that's the reality is just kind of think about those things you have to do uh, versus the things you want to do and tackle. It it might sound simple, but it's uh, get her done.
1: Oh, That's great. Well, thank you very much for those tips. And thank you very much for joining me today, Bill. It was a pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Uh, learned a lot in the process. So, uh, you know, appreciate your time. Thank you. And uh, for the listeners, if they want to learn more about you, or if they want to contact you, uh, if they're interested in any PSMJ courses, how can they contact you? Where's, where's the best place they can find you?
0: I think the best place to find me online is at psmj.com. Uh, the neat thing is you can click on the bio there it talks about myself and the whole PSMJ project team. <clears throat> Just to kind of use the words that I was saying, is I may be the right person to help you out. Uh, you know, you can click on my bio. My email is in there. It's B H I N S L E Y, B Hinesley at PSMJ.com. Or better yet, like if you're checking out Bill Heinsley at PSMJ's resources, there may be one of my team members that's even better than me at whatever issue that you have. You know, I would consider that success for you and I. People get, you know, whatever help they need, whether it's from me or one of my other colleagues at PSNJ.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much again. And thank you to those of you who tuned in. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to subscribe. And until next time, don't forget to earn your shower. Thank you.
0: There you go. That's a great way to end.
1: Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Bill.